A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The FT. You know, we understand, first of all, the very serious environmental impact of the oil spill in the Gulf. BP, of course, have an obligation to most immediately uh, stop the oil gushing out into the Gulf, but also to clean up the environmental damage and to pay legitimate uh, compensation. However, we have stressed, quite rightly, that BP is also an important global business, that it has uh, many investors in the United States, it's the largest oil company in the United States, and that it's in both the United States' interest and the UK's interest that BP has a strong future. And uh, I think that is well understood. That was George Osborne, the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer, speaking ahead of the G20 summit, which took place in Toronto at the weekend. Hello and welcome to the FD's weekly energy podcast. I'm Ed Crooks and I'm joined today by Carol Hoyos, our chief energy correspondent. Hello. By Javier Blas, our commodities correspondent. Hello. And by Fiona Harvey, the environment correspondent. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for coming along. So this week we're going to be looking at BP, of course, and the the latest twists and turns in that long-running story. We're also going to be talking about climate change policy and the new Green Investment Bank. And we're also going to be talking about Iran and the continuing battle over sanctions and some new developments we've had there this week. First of all, Carol, looking at BP, just today, as we're recording this on the afternoon of uh, Wednesday, June the 30th, things seem to be uh, looking up a little bit for BP in the financial markets. The shares are up, I think, about 8 or 9% the last time I looked. And the price of their credit default swaps, that's the cost of insuring the company's debt against default, has come down a bit. I mean, still in pretty alarming territory, but it is looking a little bit better. Carol, what's going on? Why are people feeling perhaps slightly more optimistic in the markets about BP at the moment? There are two stories that traders are noting. One is a note that actually came out during the trading day yesterday uh, by J.P. Morgan Casanova about the possibility that Shell and Exxon uh, could come in and buy BP. But the second story is one that we broke last night on FT.com and, and that was in today's paper, which was that Anadarko, the U.S. partner of BP, knew quite a bit about what was going on at the well. And that's significant because Anadarko uh, has come out against BP very strongly. But because it is a partner uh, at a tune of 25%, it is liable to help pay the costs of the liabilities and of the cleaning up of the spill unless BP is found grossly negligent. Now, if Anadarko knew a fair amount about what was going on, it undermines its case. Right, because so this uh, now notorious Macondo well, the Macondo project was well, BP 65%, Anadarko 25%, and Mitsui, the Japanese company, a further 10%. So although all the attention has been on BP in terms of BP having to pay the bill, you know, it's BP had to go and uh, go to the White House and pledge to put up 20 billion and so on. What in law, as you say, unless BP is grossly negligent, BP only gets to pay 65% of that. Yeah, that's right. And that's also significant for Anadarko, which, look, Anadarko and Mitsui and others have also suffered. I mean, the markets have noticed and Anadarko's shares have gone down, down pretty dramatically since the explosion on April 20th. But the focus has now begun to recede on BP and we're beginning to realize what 
the actual facts of the story are. The, the politics, the screaming and shouting no longer is drowning out um, uh, kind of the reality. And the reality is, as you say, that this is a project that's shared by three partners. Three partners would have made a decent amount of money on this well, but three partners also hold the liability unless BP, which operated the well. So if BP is found grossly negligent, then its partners don't necessarily need to pay, don't need to pay their share. And um, in fact, when Anna Darko went on the attack and said, we think BP acted badly and we think it's going to be found guilty of gross negligence, its share price for the first time, this was kind of in, in mid-June, began to change direction vis-a-vis BP's share price share price. The two had really tracked each other since April 20th. And suddenly we saw BP shares going down and Anadarko's going up. So the, the, the market is very sensitive to this. And today, in fact, we're seeing the opposite. Anadarko shares are going down and BPs are going up. And that, I think, is the market saying, ah, right, okay, we suspected that Anadarko, given the normal contracts you have in a Gulf of Mexico operation, may have known some things. But what we didn't know and what we know now is that Anadarko knew about the six centralizers. Anadarko actually Sorry, to be clear that the six centralizers, these are kind of technical details of the way the well was designed. Yeah. These are decisions made by BP, but yeah. sort of, I mean, what, approved by Anadarko? Well, or what there, was, there are several different... In terms of the centralizers, the decisions were made by, by BP, and then the result of the decision is given to the partners uh, within 24 hours. So every morning, um, Mitsui and Anadarko would get a morning report from BP on what happened in the 24 four hours before then and that was one of the things they knew um the and, other and, thing they and, knew... and so and so if they were really shocked sorry yeah. to interrupt but if they if they were really as, as they subsequently said shocked by what they seen it was absolutely within their rights to kind of raise a red flag exactly. and say hang on we're not happy with this we think this is not exactly. safe yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now, they didn't at the now time. anadarko interestingly argues that it's not the design of the well which they also knew about and they actually actively approved but it was the operation of BP that was the problem at this well. Um, and they argue, yes, we knew about the centralizers, but for example, what we didn't know was that Halliburton, the contractor at that point, um, actually said, look, BP, you need 21 centralizers, not six. So what they're saying is, look, we didn't have as full a picture and it wasn't that easy to throw up. It wasn't so obvious that it would throw up a red flag immediately. On the other hand, they were part of the approval process of the long string, for example, which is another rather technical term, but basically as a way of lining a well that's slightly cheaper and that, uh, than, than other methods, but also slightly riskier, um, and that uh, US lawmakers had been terribly critical of. And until now, that criticism had, had been on BP rather than on its partners. And, and in this case, for example, the partners actually actively had to approve that. What about the other question of uh, the takeover bid? Do you find that plausible? Are, are we really going to see a bid from Exxon or Shell? Well, we've heard this story before. When Shell was weakened, we heard about the possibility of a bid for Shell. When BP was weakened, this was Shell's reserve scandal a little while ago, and then BP was weakened because of the Texas City explosion and because of the brouhaha about, about the last CEO leaving. We hear these things, and they are taking seriously the discussed in the boardroom and especially on a defensive position i remember the shell ceo telling me much later by the time he'd retired that yes they very much did discuss the possibility that bp could take them over on the other hand it's not necessarily particularly simple from a regulatory point of view these are very large companies and it's still seen as a very kind of outside chance yeah. And also, you just don't know what you're buying, do you? The BP shares might look cheap because they're roughly half right. the peak that they were before the accident. But on the other hand, there's still this huge 
indeterminate liability. Who knows how? how you big have no idea how, how to value BP because the liability is unknown, and that's what you're seeing in the market every day. Um, talking of the liabilities, we had an interesting uh, thought this week also, Fiona, about the environmental damage. There's been some reassuring comment, I gather, from some scientists. Certainly, there was a group of prominent UK scientists this week. Uh, who were pointing out that actually our experience of uh, previous oil spills shows that the environment in the Gulf of Mexico could recover quite rapidly and could recover within a few years. What counts as rapidly in this context? You you could start to see uh, some things improve quite quickly. You could start to see some fish stocks come back quite quickly seabirds and so on might not suffer long-term and, damage. And, and that means and what, what sort of months or years or...? Some of these things could, could recover within within the next year. Yeah. Um, others could take a, a few years longer. And then by the time you get a little bit further out to about, you know, sort of 10-year horizon and so on, then, you know, pretty much everything w- would have recovered if, if, if things, you know, uh, follow the pattern of, of previous spills. The, the thing about this type of oil and, uh, um, and this type of spill is that comparing it with, with other spills is, is difficult because different oil spills all involve different types of oil and in different locations. The type of oil we're dealing with in BP, we're actually quite fortunate. It's it's rising to the surface. It's becoming, one of the scientists described it as like a moose on the surface. Also, the Gulf of Mexico is nice and warm, which means that when the oil reaches the surface, a lot of it evaporates. It's also quite choppy, so the the oil gets uh, gets broken up nicely. And because it's warm, uh, the bacteria that actually feed on oil, uh, they use oil as food and they they, they digest it um, and break it down. Those bacteria are able to flourish. If this was happening in a much colder place, it would be much more serious. One of the scientists I was talking to earlier this week described described it as his nightmare to have a, an oil spill somewhere like in the Arctic uh, under the ice. That's a very interesting thought. As you say, the Arctic is seen, like the deep water of the Gulf of Mexico, seen as one of the most exciting new frontiers for oil exploration. In the story that you wrote, I thought one of the more interesting, most interesting points you made was that actually the oil companies and the governments, uh, the government in this case, may be making things worse environmentally. That's right, because one of the problems is that w- we've seen this in other oil spills, that sometimes uh, the way you clean up the spill can actually make the environmental problem worse. Uh, we saw that, for instance, um, in part of the cleanup for the um, Exxon Valdez, what the scientists were telling us earlier this week was that the chemical cleanup actually caused worse problems than the oil. Well, that, that, that must be another concern then about this BP spill, which is they have used a massive volume of dispersants. I mean, it's the biggest yeah. volume of dis- dispersants ever used anywhere in the world. You know, the problem is that not, not only is it such a huge volume uh, of dispersants, but also that they have been released so deep in the sea an ironic footnote here because the people who came up with the idea of uh, putting the dispersants at the bottom of the sea were ExxonMobil. Indeed, as you say, so maybe not quite so reassuring after all. Now, Fiona, the other thing you've been looking at is uh, British climate policy and two uh, interesting developments there. One is this report from the Independent Climate Change Commission, which kind of reviews and monitors the government's climate change policy, and they've been looking at their performance. And also, you know, in a sense, a sort of a response to that issue from the government in terms of launching a green investment bank. Tell us about those. Well, the Climate Change uh, Commission had something very interesting to say. They, they were saying that the last 10 years of uh, UK uh, climate policy have really not resulted in a reduction in emissions. Now, um, that's a pretty big thing to say because actually uh, the UK's emissions dropped. Uh, they dropped 
uh, in the past year, f- between 2008 and 2009, they dropped about 8.6%, which is a pretty steep fall. And over the past uh, decade or more, they've fallen basically enough for the UK to exceed its commitments under the Kyoto Protocol. So, you know, it's been been a big drop. But what the Climate Change Committee said was that actually the, the first part of that drop was owing to the switch from coal to gas as a fuel in power stations that happened mostly in the 1990s. And recently, the emissions have dropped because of the recession. They found that very little of the reduction in emissions was actually due to policy measures. And that's quite serious because there have been a lot of policies in the UK aimed at cutting down emissions. Yeah, Yeah, we've had uh, subsidies for uh, renewable energy. Uh, We've had. There was something like someone was telling me the other day. Is it it seven or nine different things added to your energy bill? Yeah, all to do with climate policy. That's right. Yeah, and uh, and and, you know because yes, you're 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 paying for renewable energy. You're paying for incentives for people to insulate their homes and so on. But really, what what the uh, committee was saying was that these have not really had much effect and that really this light touch regulation doesn't work because a lot of the measures they were relying on people to take were either voluntary in some way or were reliant on on financial incentives which turned out to be not enough of an incentive to actually encourage people to take action. So question, is this Green Investment Bank going to make any difference? Is that going to be the one policy that's effective at last? Well, we can't hang too much on the Green Investment Bank, that's clear, because one of the findings of the people who did the report into the Green Investment Bank was that uh, putting the UK onto a low-carbon footing would cost somewhere in the region of £550 billion between now and 2020. Now, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh, that works out at about uh, £55 billion, uh, a year, obviously, and so far the uh, Green Investment Bank has funding of... Well, about four billion. Um, uh, so and that's not, not four billion. That, that's four billion in total that it might be. That's able to not disperse. even definite. This is this is like a green savings product, right? This is something. Yeah, where you'll it's, be able a, to... it's a it's so... a savings account, and it's uh, very tax efficient. And what would happen is the, the the money would be invested, and you'd get the return from that. There'd also be these things called green bonds, which would work in in quite a similar way. And then there are other ways that the this green investment bank could raise money. You see, and that could really massively increase the amount of money it gets. The problem is that there's a competition for resources uh, in terms of government spending at the moment and the other ways in which uh, a green investment bank could raise money often would require them to take that money away from somewhere else. And at a time when we have a record budget deficit, a massive fiscal squeeze going on, it's very, very hard to imagine the government's going to want to put really any money, any significant public money at all uh, towards those kind of projects. Now, uh, let's talk about Iran. We must be vigilant. We must insist that Iran implements strictly resolutions of the Security Council, decisions of the IAA governing board, and that Iran enters into negotiations which have been offered to it for quite some time in order to resolve this and to make sure that Iranian nuclear program is entirely peaceful. That was Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, who's been on a two-day visit to Israel and the Palestinian territories. He's talking fairly tough there about Iran, saying that world powers must make sure that the Iranian nuclear programme is entirely peaceful. And we're seeing, we're seeing again more signs of that kind of international pressure on Iran starting to bite a bit, right? Have you, what's happened this week? Well, for starters, we have Russia translating his wars into actions, and uh, Russian government is putting pressure on his oil companies not to sell gasoline to to Iran. But most importantly, this week we we have two elements happening. Total, the French company, has stopped 
sending uh, supplying gasoline into Iran for the first time. And that's very important because Total was one of the latest big international oil companies who was continuing selling gasoline to Iran. And this is obviously coming after last week uh, the U.S. Congress approved a new set of sanctions against companies who engage in trading and, uh, and investments into Iran that we are expecting that President Obama is going to sign into law very soon. I guess that's something that might uh, raise eyebrows in the United States probably where the casual kind of view of uh, of Russia and possibly even of France is that they are kind of soft on the Iranian regime. They've not been prepared to pursue sanctions as forcefully as they might have done. So it's pretty significant that those two countries are really kind of tightening the screw now. It is. It is. I mean, Lukoil was one of the suppliers in the past. Lukoil, the, the Russian company, was a, a supplier of Iran of gasoline in the past. And obviously, Iran is a big producer of crude oil, but his uh, refineries are uh, very old. They need investment. And the country relies on the international gasoline market to cover about 40% of his gasoline needs. And now, Total is even more important because, as we were saying, uh, has been one of the last international oil companies who was continuing doing the, the trade with Iran in the past, BP and Shell of the UK, international oil trading companies such as Glencore, Trafigura and Beetle has stopped, the same for Reliance of India, but Total was continuing there, and now it has stopped. And the question is, who is going to be trading with Iran because the country is going to need to continue to buy gasoline? And so far we have seen uh, small companies in the in the Persian Gulf, and particularly the Chinese companies, going into say- the rescue. And, and that's including quite big Chinese names, right? I mean, some, some of the main Chinese players are we, still... We have seen, including CNPC, one of the largest uh, Chinese oil companies, obviously a state-owned company who has been sending gasoline to Iran. And also the Chinese are using third-party traders to send gasoline. So the Chinese will sell the gasoline in the, into the international market, but that gasoline, that Chinese-made gasoline, is he's finding his way into Iran. How long this is going to continue? Well, that's a, a, that's the, the most important question because China obviously is on board on the new sanctions, on the discussions with the United States, and it has been uh, having a, certainly a, a bit of a harder line than at least in the past. But we, we cannot forget that for China, Iran continues to be a huge source of energy and, and crude oil supplies. So the balance there, uh, it's going to be rather difficult for the country. So you think it's it's going to be hard for China really to exert a lot of pressure on Iran? They, they'll be reluctant to do that? I, I think that they were going to be reluctant. They may stop selling gasoline directly, but I don't think that the, the trade through third parties, uh, it's, it's going to stop. And in any case, right now, we have a global surplus of gasoline. So at the end of the day, I think that whatever the sanctions are, the regime in Tehran will be able to find enough gasoline into the market to continue to supply the country. Maybe they have to pay a higher price, but that's going to be the only only difference. And on the other hand, there are analysts who think that this could play on the hands of Tehran because it will have a a, a good narrative to tell his uh, public opinion, we need to increase the price of gasoline, that at the end of the day, that's the reason why uh, ga- uh, Iran needs so much gasoline. It's so cheap. Gasoline in, in Iran is sold uh, uh, cheaper than, than water. Consumption is huge. There is no saving. And, and, and that's the, the, the heart of the problem. If Iran now could approach his public opinion and say, look, international community is putting pressure on us, we need to increase the price of gasoline, get rid of the need to import the fuel. At the end of the day, this could play very well into Iran because that's saving a lot of billion dollars. So putting all that together then, all these different moves against Iran, bottom line is it is making life more difficult for the Iranian government. 
Is it going to bring the country to a halt? Is it going I to be? I don't a de- think so. Yeah. And I think that even the the United States and and the director of the CIA was uh, this week talking about that. It could make things more difficult in Tehran for the regime. But at the end of the day, these sanctions are not going to stop. Iran attempts to to continue his nuclear program, whether that program is uh, for electricity generation, as as Tehran said, or to get the, a nuclear weapon, as the West fears. Well, that's that's uh, open for interpretation. But I don't think that the gasoline sanctions are going to change the game significantly. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you very much to Carla and to Fiona. Thanks for coming along. And thanks to all of you for listening. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani, and I'm Ed Crooks. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.